Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have to bring the kids to school then, the big work presentation, and the in-laws are over for dinner tonight. I have so much to do. Does this sound familiar? Rosanna Davison here. We all have days where things can be overwhelming. When I feel the need for emotional support, I reach for Rescue Remedy to help dial down my hectic day naturally. Rescue is a unique combination of flower essences to support calm so you can stay on top of your day. Rescue Remedy, available from pharmacies and health stores nationwide. Also in Super Value and Tesco. Welcome to the Dope Black Dads podcast, a place where we are changing the narrative and having progressive conversations about black fathers, as well as creating a safe digital space for the community. This is a Dope Black Dad podcast. I'm Marlon Bruce, your host today. Today I'm joined by Lamaya and Tobogo. Good to have you guys. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good to meet you. How are you doing? How are you doing? You enjoying the weather? Yeah, I mean, I love the, I love the heat, so I'm happy that it's, that it's this hot. Ah, uh, cool. Uh, are you based in London? Are you outside yeah, of London? I'm based in Ah, fantastic. Ah, very, very upmarket. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your experience of education. Yeah, oh gosh, I don't know where to start really. So I'm originally from Nottingham, from the East Midlands. And uh, I went to a Catholic school. It was a really good school in Nottingham. And I had a great experience of education, to be honest. Um, and then I went on to go to college and then did an undergraduate degree at Aston University in Birmingham. I a place near at the Houses of Parliament and then did my master's degree at Cambridge University. So quite a wide range of experience in terms of my education. My undergraduate degree was at one of the most diverse universities in the UK and obviously my postgraduate degree wasn't at one of the most diverse universities in the UK. I, w- I would say I've had a positive experience in education in, in general definitely and and was that was that like a is that a linear path so uh thinking back to your family and their educational uh, their or academic experience so is your path quite is it linear to what your parents did and to what your grandparents did does, does it follow the same suit are you the first in your family or of your of your generation in your family no i'm not the first in my family my mum went to uni after she had me and she then studied to be a teacher and then she kind of rose through the ranks and is now a senior leader in in um nonprofit university. But I mean, I'm from a working class Caribbean family. My mum was a single parent when she had me, and I think my mum was very heavily involved in my education, which I think was extremely useful. And even with studying, she would like, help me write post notes and stick them all around the house. I remember so that I could just constantly revise. 
she was really actively involved and even though she was a single parent I always say that like it was kind of like having two parents because my grandma was also heavily involved all the extracurricular activities and taking me to like piano lessons and all of that sort of stuff they were both really really heavily involved in my education and I think as I've gotten older I definitely understand the importance of having parents that are really kind of behind your child and pushing them to to work as hard as they possibly can in education. Absolutely. Um, my, my, my background um, is very very similar to yours. I went to a, a Catholic school, Catholic boys school in, in North London, went on to college, uh, went on to university, went to De Montfort, then did my master's at UCL and then went on to a grad program in local government and just, you know, cl- climbed the ranks there. Uh, well, not ranks, but climbed the hierarchy there. Uh, it was really difficult. But what was interesting is in my, my penultimate job that I did, was with a global developer. So the job I got, I was headhunted for. And at this job was uh, lots of people from Oxford and Cambridge, people that had been to Reading, you know, a very sort of direct linear path into construction or senior management in construction. But here I was with everyone else, but, you know, had lots of trials and contribulations to getting my degree anyway, and being second guessed. um, You know, I didn't realise that, uh, you know, the whole uh, education system it is not especially university is not totally black and white and you can negotiate what what you you know grades and you know um uh, what were they called the deferrals you know so you're running out of time you can defer I, I didn't even realize this until my third year pressures at university you you scored a 40 percent but most of your grades are 60 percent you could write back and say you know here we are why have I got 60 I've, I've you know had a torrid time this is why I've got 40 percent and then get introduced to 60%. Um, so, you know, things were much, 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 well, much different, but, you know, very similar, very similar to you. Hello, Marvin, with a Y. <laughs> Hi, guys, how you doing? Lamaya, you, you are, a, you know, a child of, of private education, or private education, sorry, but you higher education, one of the most world-renowned establishments for educating people in the world. Um, you know, I think it's top five, I believe, alongside Harvard and maybe uh, Oxford. How, what is that experience is like? I'm fascinated because, uh, you know, I know Topoho was um, uh, educated in a private institution as well. One of the most amazing ones. Me and Marlon went to public school and you can clearly tell the difference between his esteem and, you know, mine and yours. And <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us what the experience was like? So I'm just absolutely ribbing Marlon. I love him to death. But can you tell us what the experience is like as a, as a black person in Cambridge? And I assume you did it before the waves of people that have come after you. What was that experience like? So I went to Cambridge, I did, I did my master's at Cambridge, I did my undergraduate degree at Aspen University in, in Birmingham, which was obviously, it was really, really racially diverse. I think it's one of the most racially diverse universities in the UK. But the thing is, I, I, what I will say is that I went to do my master's at Cambridge, and I can't remember how old I was now, maybe 24, 25 years old. And by that point, I'd already worked at the Houses of Parliament. I'd worked for high-profile politicians. I'd worked in, in, in spaces that are dominated by white middle-class um, men who are a lot older. So, I mean, I didn't, Cambridge in comparison to the Houses of Parliament wasn't, it, it didn't make me feel uncomfortable or kind of out of my depth by that point. So I do definitely realise that my experience might be quite unique in comparison to an undergrad who might be 19 or 18 years old who's going there and kind of moving away from home for the first time. But I, what, what I will say is that I went to a college that is well known for being um, like one of the most friendly colleges at Cambridge. And I did really feel that. I felt really supported by my college institution. I think there was only one instance that 
I didn't know whether it was really directly related to racism, but that was kind of uncomfortable. And when I did voice it to the college, they would interview me straight away. I don't know, they were just super supportive. I made a lot of friends there. One of my best friends that I met there is now my business partner. So I, I, I can definitely say I had a really, really positive um, experience at Cambridge, to be honest. I'm really fascinated by that because I think that well, you can chime in now as well but like the, the journey from going from somewhere like Aston University which I actually applied for and I got in actually but it was just too far from home I was I was well, I wanted to be close to my mum and so there's you know I got into Aston but I would never ever consider coming from where I come from even considering going to somewhere like Cambridge what was that for you what where was the the, the spark where was it lit to go from there and again it'd be great to hear to behold your experience of private education Oh, well, I mean, for me, I mean, the reason why I wanted to go, do you know what, do you know what it is? I think just how I've been raised, my pet, my, my mum in particular has always just been like, she's happy to, she's happy for me to do whatever I want to do, whatever career path I go down, as long as I'm, as far as I get to the top in whatever domain it is. So I think kind of having that drilled in you from kind of such an early age just meant that, like, I would just think about, not to sound cocky, but where the top spaces are. And I would just want to aspire to get to them. And I also thought about my undergraduate experience at Aston. Um, I was really interested in race and politics from really, really early. And in uni, all of the political modules that I took, I was specialised in race or gender or class and just diverted back to black women, if it was gender or if it was race, it would just be about like race inequalities and so on. Class, again, the intersection between race and class. So it, was all, it was all about that. And I just wanted to take my undergraduate experience further and then I knew that Cambridge would help me do that do that. And also there was particular modules in the course that I took at Cambridge. I took international relations and politics and I knew that I could specialise in African politics in that. I'm of Caribbean heritage, but I'm also kind of I'm Pan African as well. And I wanted to learn more about African history and African philosophy, Pan African thought and Cambridge had some phenomenal kind of resources on that. So that was also a, a massive factor for why I wanted to go there. So what, what was your experience? Am I characterising it correctly that you went to a private school or am I just like saying words at you that, that don't actually match your experience? <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, for, for high school, I went to a private school. But, but you know, I guess maybe similar to other countries, our private schools have got different tiers in terms of, you know, just how private, private it can be. And so I guess this private school I went to, you could argue, is, is accessible private or kind of your mid-tier private schools. And the interesting posture about our school was that it was kind of one of the first schools that allowed, you know, black kids to come to the school kind of post-apartheid. And a lot of the politicians who had... Um, were part of the African National Congress, which is currently the leading party or the ruling party at least, sent their kids there to school. And so in many respects, as a multiracial space, we were lucky enough to see a lot of ourselves within the school. And it forced the school and its institution to transform quite quickly because the parents and the PTA or the Parents Teachers Association was kind of filled with these politicians and powerful people who are shaping the future of the country. So that's kind of my private high school experience. And then for university or for college, I went to the University of Cape Town. Marvin, you've been to Cape Town. So yeah, I guess it's it's known to be one of the leading universities here in, in South Africa. <laughs> when, when, you, when, you, when you said I'd been to Cape Town, yeah, could you contextualize that for the people who haven't been to Cape Town? What your inference is? So, so Cape Town is kind of the city in in our country in South Africa that's known for for opulence for it's I guess a, a lot more of the white people in the country 
still kind of protect their privilege in that space. There's a lot of kind of income disparity and wealth disparity. So, you know, the, the rich people are super rich and the, the, the poor people, black people, most, most, in most cases are, are quite poor. And there's quite a very clear uh, chasm and space between the two, even geographically, where on the one side of the mountain, which is kind of like Hard Bay, Camps Bay, and where you kind of overlook the, the beautiful ocean, that's where your expats and internationals uh, and white people stay. And then on the other side of that mountain, kind of your, they will call them colored people here in South Africa and, and your black people stay. So it's, it's kind of in, incredibly racially uh, tense. The standard of living is high if you are of a particular disposition and, and race. And, and so, you know, you kind of feel that when you're in the university, but also because they've invested in infrastructure, you also get to benefit from that in, in a way. So that's just a bit of a context around the University of Cape Town, or at least Cape Town, uh, more importantly. Toboho, it was, it's, you know what it is? Camp Bay is so beautiful, yeah, that I basically went to a house party with somebody else and I ended up staying in that person's spare room because I just didn't want to leave. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Like I, I'd, met, I'd met them that day and it got to like curfew about 11 o'clock. I goes, I'm going to stay in your third bedroom because I think I want to wake up and see all of this in the morning. Is that okay? And they're like, sure. And I was like, that's like, that's just another, it's the most beautiful place I have ever seen. So in one part, there's like mountains in the distance to my left, the sea to my right, and all these spaceship looking homes all around you. It's just incredible. And, and in, you know, some of those houses are worth about a million, million and a half, sometimes even more pounds. But then on the other side of the mountain in Cape Flats, you know, there's, there's townships and all sorts of things. But there's also some nice residential places on the other side of the mountain. Let's not make it out like the whole thing's the ghetto. But it's a really interesting divide. We kind of have it in London, but in London, you have like a two and a half million pound house and an estate behind it, which is also <laughs> slightly confusing. So you can't really get away from necessarily extreme poverty in London. It kind of just sits on top of each other. Um, Marlon, what was your understanding of like private school? Because, you know, me and you, we went to school school. Yeah. <laughs> we went to school where you you may have to run after school because things are happening <laughs> that may not necessarily concern you, but it's better not to be around. What was your understanding of private school? Because I didn't know it existed. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was where the super elite went and not real people. So, um, so for me, I went to a grammar school very... Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Excuse me. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I went to a hood school. You went to a... Grammar Say that again, sorry. Grammar. grammar. Nice to meet you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Went to a grammar school. But so in, in our in our catchment was, I think there was about six or seven private schools and they were in the same league as us anyway. So we used to play football with them. And our understanding was one, they spoke extremely well. And two, they, they had pitches to die for. So you play football their facilities were out of this world. They used to provide, provide you with drinks and biscuits after. Um, they did lots of extracurricular activities as well, because, you know, after games, you exchange. And they were studying economics a lot more earlier. Uh, and it was just affluence, wasn't it? You just, just you, they were always dressed much better. They always had much bigger bags than we did. You know, I mean, this one's going hockey or this one's going rugby or this one's going Duke of Edinburgh or this one's going skiing. You know, we, we went skiing, but it was just like a grammar school on steroids and everyone's dad had a Rolls Royce or some sort of massive car and some big house. You know, so that was our, our understanding of them. But I mean, in terms of like my views on the private system, so my, my daughter goes to a private school. You know, if your child is extremely smart and you go to a private school, what they're good at in those schools is harnessing that intelligence and harnessing those talents and driving it to be the best and creating an environment where you can learn 
realize your strengths really quickly and there's no barriers. So my daughter understands no barriers in entertainment. So she can be, she, she knows she can be whatever she wants to be and there's no barriers. You know, color doesn't come into that. Ability doesn't come into that. You know, the, through the system that she's gone through, she just, there's whatever she wants to do, she'll make happen. Um, and she learns at an alarming rate, super, super intelligent. And then there's, so I'm a believer in the state system because you can absolutely get that from the state system. It's just that I think the influences are slightly different in a private school. It's, it's not the same challenges that you'd have in a state school. You know, so what my daughter's facing in a private school, what some of my nieces and nephews were facing in a state school are two, two different sets of challenges in terms of, in terms of growing up. But, you know, um, she, she's, she's been privately educated right from the get go, right from the jump. And you, you can, you can see the difference just in her confidence, confidence with education, just how she's grown as a person, her understanding of the world, um, her ability to challenge me and challenge my thinking and my concepts on how I think the world should be. You know, they just learn much more broader. And I, I feel you can get some elements of that in a state school, uh, but, but, but not all. But Amaya, so for you then, do you, you know, how did, have you noticed the difference between people of your age range? Because I, I think generationally there's a difference anyway. Like, so, you know, us wonderful people in our mid to late 30s created a pathway for you to have a much healthier school system because <laughs> we were the guinea pigs and thrown into the woods to figure it out. Uh, and it's gradually got better and better in terms of integration and acceptance and quality of education. But I suppose, do you notice a difference between people in your age range who didn't get a master's? in uh, from Cambridge versus those that did has it opened up more doors for you do you like brush off the people who come from London yeah. met like ugh, like go away like how, how does that change well, I mean, your I life <laughs> in, in any way shape or form I went to state school as well it was just my I went to a Catholic school but yeah I mean I don't I wouldn't say I noticed the difference I think as I was saying before my upbringing I'm from a working class background I'm from Nottingham the school that I was at I mean I wouldn't say I didn't it, w- it wasn't necessarily racially diverse, but I def- I didn't feel like an outcast because I was black as in there was, I, I had black friends and I don't know, I, I suppose when you're a child, maybe it's because it wasn't a case of where I was in kind of in a rural area in the Midlands where there was like two black children in my class. It wasn't, that, that wasn't the scenario, do you know what I mean? It was racially diverse enough for me to feel like A, I belonged and B, that I had a healthy understanding and a healthy Caribbean upbringing in terms of my social circles, my family, all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the Cambridge and the Parliament stuff happened later on. So by that point, I was, I mean, my first job in Parliament, I think I was around 19 or 20 years old. So I, and like I said, I was in one of the most racially diverse unis in the UK. Aston University even has a Martin Luther King Centre on campus. So, I mean, so I think the the Parliament and the Cambridge stuff came later on. So by that point, you don't really... I, don't, I wouldn't say that I really noticed the difference because I'd already really had, I already had a very strong sense of identity. By the time I went into parliament, I already knew what my focus was, which was all about kind of race and politics. And that's, that's why I was hired. Again, when I, went into, when I went into Cambridge University, by that point, I had already kind of established myself in terms of my political work, work in parliament. They knew that I was advocating for race. So they knew by even accepting me into Cambridge that once I got there, I would be trying to shake things up. So I don't think... I wouldn't say you really notice the difference. I think when people have kind of gone through the ranks in terms of like politics or the corporate world, then you really can see a difference between kind of people in those kinds of environments and others, especially when you look at kind of pioneers in grassroots organisations or in charities, 
um, in comparison to people who have kind of like stayed in corporate worlds or in or in politics, for example, then I suppose you notice the difference. But in terms of like elite institutions, no, I wouldn't really say so, especially not for students of colour. Do you know what? Do you know what I'm trying to get at? I, you know, it is I authentically. Yeah, we're all quite. We're not. We're not. We're not the norm. We're outliers in many ways. And I'm trying to find out what the spark was to to for us to be outliers. And it could be parental. It could be environment. It could be education at any of the levels all the way up to now. But there's a reason why we're us. Like there's no slouches on this call. And there's reasons why we're not somebody else with challenges in education or challenges in uh, advancement. And I think often, and it's, it's probably a real debate, like how much is it parenting? How much is it environment? How much is it education? How much is it opportunity? Like where, where in that journey, where in that, that, you know, that, that experience of your life, did it land to you that, that you're, you're, you are not going to not do things or you're not going to excel or, you know, where did that moment of, of consciousness come from? I don't, I don't know if people are necessarily aware of it, but I, I have my awareness. I'll, I'll share mine very quickly. I always happen to have at very key moments, 16, 19, 21, 24, just a older black person who spotted me, saw something that was a bit of an ingredient, not necessarily could guide it, but they would power into me this idea that, you know, you're, you, you, there is something unique about me. And I, one thing that used to frustrate me was that when people tell you you have potential, but don't know how to mold it themselves, it can be quite frustrating. So I used to try lots of different things and move in different ways. And then I finally landed in my purpose through marketing and advertising. And I was quite fortunate in that, but I always had people that sparked that understanding into me, around me. And then, you know, I had a mentor for at, at 21 and a mentor at maybe 25, 26, who really pushed me. Do, do you guys know of your moment or where you got your awareness or what the spark was for you? Um, I can say that mine was definitely education and, 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 pe- and my parents, 1,010%. I mean, like, I'm not sure if you were on the call when I was saying before, Marvin, but my mom and my grandma in particular drilled into me from, like, as, as being a child that that you can kind of be whatever you want to be and like do do whatever career you want but they'll support me along the way and they they literally would anything that I wanted to do they'll take me to classes they'll stay up with me until whatever time of the night like helping me revise they were just really really supportive parents so I think that family system also like from an early age my grandma would drill into me that I was going to be a leader and she would constantly tell me so I think that that definitely had a massive impact education system and I had really supportive teachers I can say that as well right from the get-go and that's right from primary school up until Cambridge University so I do think having a good relationship with your teachers does help Um, when they can kind of see that you want to do well then they'll try and push you there like I would always say to my teachers I want to get a first or I want to get whatever the highest mark is and then they will help you out but I think it's kind of having that belief in yourself that helps you along the way and I agree what you're saying in terms of mentors to be honest I wouldn't really say that I was mentored massively during my career I think I found it easier to establish friends who were further along as in like politicians for example like black politicians would take me under their wing but it wasn't really kind of like a mentorship it was more so just like a camaraderie if that makes sense but having people like that that you can kind of call on and get advice from I suppose but then you can also help support as well whether it's like for me it would be like writing policy briefs or helping advise them on particular matters like that that obviously helped as well like having good role good role models from an early age was was also super useful. What about you Tavar Marlon what, what who, who was your like knight in shining armor? Yeah I, I think in that order uh, parents teachers friends um, exactly what uh, Lamaya said 
I think my parents, and I think I, I'm, I'm grateful and, and like it's a blessing that both my parents have been alive through my upbringing and, you know, being married. And as such, it's just I had a very different level of support compared to a lot of my counterparts and friends, you know. But my, my parents were professionals and they knew the value of not just getting access to the education, but converting it and supporting me within that environment. I think, you know, when I look at the private school that I went to, we were exposed to similar environments and similar stimulus, but our upbringing and the environment that we went back to at home had a very huge, you know, um, impact on how we were able to entrench and institutionalize the learnings that we were picking up as we went through, you know, and teachers had a huge uh, impact in terms of the validation of self in the good things. I think it's quite easy to tell someone that, you know, you're stupid, you're not going to make it, you know, your dreams are invalid, etc. But the teachers that I met along the way always validated my dreams, always validated me being a black human being um, and never ran, ran away from that. And, and that gave me space in the world um, to occupy leadership positions. Um, as Lamaya said, you know, they, they, they spoke words of encouragement around occupying the space of leadership and knowing that uh, number one, you're fortunate, but number two, that it is your kind of purpose and responsibility to take up the space of leadership in a world where, you know, there's so much to do. So those first two and then friends for me were and still are, I, you know, I met my friends in what was then standard four, but it's, it's grade six now. So. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So 1996, and we're still friends today. But it was the, the the breaking down of those echo chambers, the constant shaping of our worldview in when we were not even able to travel, you know. So, you know, we would pick up different things from all over the place and bring them together into this melting pot of ideas and conversations. And that is what defined and developed our worldview. So definitely those three are top of the list in terms of the, the inflection points of uh, determining who I am today. 
Orla's driving her new Citroen C4 crossover. She's on a call with her friend who's asking if her in-laws from hell have left yet. Orla's husband is in the front seat. The in-laws are in the back seat. Orla is on hands-free. This could be a very uncomfortable drive. Except the Citroen C4 crossover comes with advanced comfort seats and best-in-class rear legroom, making it a very comfortable drive indeed. Citroen. Engineered for comfort. See citroen.ie. I think, I think Marlon, I, I, I want you to oh, go, go yeah, but I, 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 no, I, I, don't, I don't give a toss about what you have to say. I'm sick of you. <laughs> but no, I, I have a quite antagonistic question that I'm going to ask you to answer first, yeah? Okay. Because at the same time, yeah, look, we, uh, there's one side of it where often we talk about blackness and we're very aware that there are people who have managed to get through the traps, you know, have done very well for themselves. And quite often in blackness, that then isn't necessarily celebrated. So there's like a moment where there's like, if you're if you're famous, famous, like Stormzy gets celebrated for being a great music artist, and he's like, Stormzy, he done amazingly well. He came from the streets, he did all this stuff. But then there's just a guy who built himself in business or in, in the realm of work and has done incredibly well. And he just like disappears. He almost has to pretend he doesn't make six figures, seven figures. Because as soon as you say that, I think people just disconnect with you. Like, do we do we celebrate the people who have made it through without becoming, you know, dribbling a ball and like shucking and jiving? Because I can't dance very well, not well enough anyway, to be celebrated for what I do. So I need I need this to happen. Marlon, what's your understanding? Is that a fair thing to say about how the we, we are operating the black community? Yeah, we 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 don't. So I I uh, proposed this project that looked at role models. Um, so I asked sort of like fifteen kids, uh, young people in my locality who their role models were. So, you know, rappers, footballers, sports drivers. Most of them were black, which was nice. But my role model is my dad. And, you know, he he's done significant things. You know, he, he came here from Guyana when he was, you know, six. You know, so, you know, a zero baseline. Didn't understand the culture. You know, worked really hard. Became an engineer. Got a home. Built a business, you know. Um, and he's, he's my idol. But that's not celebrated in our community at all. So the, 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 the average person doesn't, my, my, my mum's in a bit, my mum is massively intuitive. So she taught us to read before we got to school. And I hated every minute of it. But when I got to school and realized the levels of people that couldn't read and, you know, you go to the library and you have to get those books that, you know, the cat, the dog. And me and my sisters were like at the other section in the library, like, what's wrong with these dads? <laughs> why can't it? Why are they over there not being able to read? Do you know what I mean? And that, so being able to read really helped us with our English and we all flew. We sailed for English, you know, completely academically done. We've done, all done uh, really fantastically, fantastically well. But that gem should be celebrated in our community. You know, if, if most mothers or all mothers uh, did that with their children or all fathers or families did that and that was celebrated, you know, then that would help the progression for the 30% that don't do so well in school. So, you know, in answer to your question, that, you know, what we would consider the average Joe, the, the, the person that hasn't made the millions and isn't on the TV every day is not celebrated in our community. And that could be, you know, bus drivers, environmental officers, you know, local government officers, uh, you know, people that work in parliament, just the, the people that we, we don't see on the front pages of the paper or don't see their magazines. That's that, that bulk of our community is just not celebrated enough. And that's our driving force, to be fair. 
Can I add more seasoning? Because I'm a seasoning kind of person. Can I add more seasoning, yeah? Contextually, like, even some of the most vocal and loud activists, the people who drive the conversation around challenges in the black community, they now earn six figures, sometimes seven figures, from books and speaking and podcasting and, you know, you know different types of brand campaigns. They're no longer the world that they speak about. Like, the, I feel like almost as then... And also, the other thing is, is that if you are that person like for instance i have a my gift is strategy and advertising so if if there was racial equality tomorrow i'll just go back to what i do and i'll still have something to do some people don't have another thing so are, are they invested in actually solving the problem or are you invested in keeping the conversation going so you get another book deal and another brand deal and another and i think this is a very like sensitive question because you know we don't want to attack people who are doing great work but it's a very valid point about you know, if you solve the problem, who are you now? What do you do now? And so I feel like sometimes we don't speak about the fact that actually we've done very well out of this. I think the founder of Black Lives Matter in the US, who I think she's actually stepped down now, had, had generated like $7 million or $17 million or something bizarre like that and had seven houses in four different states. You know, is, is she a Marxist now? Like, I, it was just hella confusing. And we don't really have an idea as to what that means. I kind of want to go to Lamaya because I'm looking at you. <laughs> I'm looking at you and I feel like between you and Taboho, because I'd like to know what it's like in South Africa. What's your understanding of the sort of ecosystem of black activists, but also black middle class going beyond some of the challenges that they may represent? And what does that actually mean? And are we genuinely solving the problem if the problem is profiting us? I don't, I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. I think that if you, if you can make a, to be fair, like I have, to be fair, I have a real opinion on this because I think what I found basically in my work today. So obviously, I run the parliamentary group for race equality and education. I founded that group. I also own another company called Enact Equality, where we work with politicians and celebrities to advocate for greater race equality. I run those two entities full time. So that's that's my income. One, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can advocate for something and earn a living off it without kind of losing your voice or losing your purpose or losing what your core mission is. Number two, as a result of working in this space and kind of work, I've worked in politics in general for a number of years, I've met loads of black organisations and grassroots organisations on the ground. And they're often led by people who have full-time roles working in either white corporate entities or white-run companies who run black grassroots organisations on their side. A lot of the time, these are parents as well. So, I mean, it's unfair. I personally think it's unfair that a lot of the time, tackling race equality, the onus is on the black community, despite the fact that obviously a lot of it is about white people and white leaders educating themselves they're also the ones in positions of power that can actually enact this change however the onus has fallen on the black community which means that often they're running two to three jobs volunteering for x number of black organizations and running their own black organizations on the side but not earning any capital whatsoever whilst doing that and whilst running the labor that then educates white leaders so that's so first of all i definitely don't think they're mutually exclusive and if you can make a living off it if anything it's going to do better for you your well-being and your family going forward and also so you're entitled to it why should black why should a black person have to work for free to help end racism that harms them and the generations after them third of all i think what you're referencing is like a real age-old problem and there's been like loads of kind of philosophies and ideologies that are actually being based around this it's like the idea that for example for me like I, obviously i was working class i had a working class upbringing and then i understand the fact that I've, now i'm working in parliament i went to cambridge and so on so it's the idea that 
when you've kind of had this working class upbringing, but then you go into these elite institutions, do you lose that black consciousness? Like, do you, can you really advocate for something when you're no longer within that scenario or within that social dynamic? And actually, I feel like if your core principles, if the policies that you're advocating still benefit those, and if you're still if you're still around people that are still on the ground or from where you came from, for example, when Marlon was saying that his best friends, or was, I can't remember if it was you or if it was Marvin, was saying that your best friends are still the ones that you met right from the beginning, then I feel like you can. I don't think you necessarily have to lose that. However, I do think it is a problem. I do think there have obviously been instances where people have lost that consciousness, where people do change their morals and change their priorities and no longer advocate for the black community. But if you are pro-black or pan-African or whatever it is, and your core purpose is advocating for the community or advocating for equality, then you don't necessarily need to remain working class. You don't need to remain in poverty where you began in order to do that. And actually having access to power, if anything, will help your community progress further. Uh, Tabaho, what, 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 what are your views? Yeah, I, I think a lot of what Lamaya mentioned is, 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 is true. You know, the, the reality of the South African context is that the black middle class is a very thin very delicate group of people. And so we walk on eggshells because you're one paycheck from falling below that, that, that class level and being seen to have tried to be this really pompous, amazing human being, but all of a sudden having, you know, fallen back to be part of the masses. I think that's the first thing. The second is uh, our, our version and definition of success by and large has got a lot of whiteness and proximity to whiteness uh, to it. You know, and I guess that's because we were closed up as a country for so long. And a part of it also has to do with kind of international popular culture. So when you're black, in order for you to be able to define success for yourself, it either has to look white or it has to look American. And if it doesn't look like those things, then it doesn't get celebrated. So we've struggled to really find an authentic sense of African black excellence that we can celebrate. And a lot of it sits in the teachers, the nurses, the plumbers, uh, the people who basically have carried this, 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 this country and this continent on its back. You know, um, I, I keep saying to my, to, to people who are always willing to listen that I'm still amazed at young or let me put it this way the power of black women in african and south african society is unbelievable because what they managed to do with a small amount of money is absolutely incredible these were domestic workers these were nurses and teachers who would never have the opportunity to have high paying jobs, but their kids were put through schools. They would have clothes on their backs. They would have a roof over their heads. They would sleep having had a, a you know, a hot meal. And this was off the back of a very small, small amount of money. And, you know, those are the real heroes for me in, in, in our context. But in terms of, you know, the, the, the middle class, that sensitivity around proximity to whiteness and capital always has an impact on whether or not you're being seen to be a sellout because of your the changes that start to happen, right? Your your language starts to change. And to somewhat, some extent, if you speak English for long enough, you actually start to lose your, your, native, your native language. And that, that kind of ostracizes you and removes you from what has been your community, um, your culture, you know, where you start to see things in a different way because of your worldview, whether it is, you know, I don't like to see an animal get slaughtered because I just don't like seeing animals die, you know, then they're like, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty interesting. That has been our African culture all along. But now that you've got this high paying job, you now don't want to see that happen. What's happening? Why are you changing? You know, so 
a lot of these habits that start to come in based on your ability to travel more, uh, to interact and integrate more into other societies, kind of sometimes make you feel makes you feel alienated. And the last bit, maybe for 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 this question, or it is around you know kind of survivor's guilt, right? You kind of have this issue of of knowing that you're one of the few that had got out. You know, you look at your community. We've got a sixty seven percent youth unemployment rate in South Africa. Now that's massive. If I look around a room, six to seven young black people in a room of ten are unemployed and are likely not to be able to get a job. And you're the one that got out. How dare you come into a room and talk about, you know, employment and, and, and the world of being able to earn and being able to live this life. And so you dumb it down, you quiet it, quieten it down so that you don't feel like you're making people feel small, you know, for, for, for your achievements. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think, I think one of the things that we miss in this conversation is that once you elevate to those levels, the racism and the fight doesn't stop. It just becomes much more isolated. So, you know, you're at the top, you're earning well, but, you know, there's much less black people or people of colour around you. There's much less people for you to lean on. So you definitely still have a story. You know what I mean? It's just an elevated story. And, it, you know, it's, it's even more difficult because the people that you're competing with have been through private education from beginning to end and they've got similarities there. And, you know, your background slightly different. Um, you know, they want to understand, you know, why you speak the way you do. You know, that's the challenge you get. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, why you're so educated that, you know, that those are the questions that, that you get at that. Um, uh, just, just to wrap up and it'd be good to hear from, from both of you. What, what's your advice for parents, uh, who have children in, in private education or higher education? Which is not diverse. Well, you know what? What's what pointers can 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 we offer them? That's so tricky. <laughs> um, I mean, I would probably say because <laughs> I'm not a parent myself, but I can definitely base it off the the support that my parents sure. gave to me. And I would just basically say that you just have to give your child the confidence to know that if anything, that they they're even more deserving in a sense. Is in there's hardly anyone there that looks like you. If if you're a parent that's fought to get your child in, that's fought past however many barriers, systemic barriers, to even be able to afford to send your child to private school, then you've surpassed all of those barriers and you have to teach your child the skills to understand that if anything, they should be proud of themselves for even being able to take up space in that kind of environment, knowing that they're a visible minority. In addition to that, I know that when I went to school, my mum would always say to me, if one thing happens, if you even feel like you're experiencing some form of racism, come back home and tell me. If there was literally the slightest thing, I would go back home and tell my mum, my mum would be straight into school the next day. And that was that was by far one of the best things that I, I think, like I said, I've always been interested in race, but knowing that my parents were actively interested in race as well, just in terms of supporting me, they weren't really interested in politics, but if I experienced any type of racism, they would just be straight on the phone, straight into school, and they were that heavily involved. And I think that is super, super useful, is knowing that as a child, you feel protected by your parents, not in terms of physical protection, but in terms of your your skin colour, and knowing that if anything happens, your parents are backing you 100%. Um, it just helps you be vocal, and I've taken that skill throughout the rest of my life. And I know that there's a whole thing about picking your battles. I do not pick my battles. If you ask any of my, my teachers, my friends, anyone who knows me, I don't pick any battles. If I hear one thing that's inappropriate, I'll call it out then and there. And if that, and if you end up being known for that, then whatever, because at least you know that the next person in that scenario hopefully won't have to go through the same things that you went through because that person will then think twice before making a, a racially inappropriate mark or a racist joke. 
So I think they're really the two main pieces of advice that I'd give to a parent who has a child that's in a predominantly white education space. Absolutely. Saboho, what about you? Yeah, I think stay close, stay really close. I think our our kids are finding unique ways to disconnect while looking connected. And I think that's part and parcel of kind of this digital world that they live in. They could be watching something on their iPad and they are looking at you and you think that they're connecting with you, but they're actually inside this digital world. So they're building a set of skills that we haven't kind of picked up on, which is this ability to be connected to multiple stimuli at the same time. So stay close so that you can feel the pulse of what your kids are going through. That's the first thing. The second would be continue to be an intellectual partner to your children. You know, I, I read a book some time ago called Conscious Parenting or Consciousness Parenting. And it has to do with looking at your relationship with your kids, not as hierarchical in terms of father, child, but rather as a flat structure where you offer different things in the relationship, similar to what you would have with a intimate partner, right? Um, you don't see yourselves as one is better than the other, but you just bring different influences and experiences. So, you know, I think that our kids as intellectual partners, you give them a worldview, you challenge their thinking, and they're bringing in a new set of thinking, which is cha- challenging some dominant logic traps that we've built around ourselves, around race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, environmental affairs, etc. And I think that ability to conversate and dialogue will always keep you learning, but will also give them a contextual space to balance what they learn with reality. Because I don't think they will get that in a predominantly white school where the context is very different to what could be, you know, what we experience at home. And then the last thing for me is for us as parents to continue to be advocates uh, uh, for change, to be advocates for transformation, inclusion and diversity so that we can really set this path where our kids can have a space to realize and, 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 and enjoy freedom in its truest sense. Fantastic. I think, you know, the key things there are definitely to protect your children. I know one thing that a lot of parents, uh, people of color, black, black parents that, that go to private schools experience is racism. So, you know, protecting your children is really, really important and definitely be prepared for racism. Going to an elitist school, be prepared for it and also keep keep your children close. I think that's really another really, really um, um, important uh, word of wisdom, you know, advocate and, and, and keep, your, keep your children close. Cool. Thank you both for your insight today. That's been, you know, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for sharing so honestly and eloquently, you know, your, your experiences. That's been really, really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And so thank you guys for listening. I really much appreciate it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, you can find us at, uh, at Dope Black Dads on all social media platforms. You can also email me for a chat at hello at dopeblackdads.com. Thank you so much for listening, my brothers. I appreciate you all. Uh, we'll be back next week. A beautiful bouquet of flowers. It can say more than words ever could. To celebrate, congratulate, or just let someone know you're thinking of them. Flowers.ie know every bouquet is special, so every order they receive is hand-picked, arranged with care, and delivered with love across Ireland. They even send a video before it's delivered so you know it's just right. Say it with flowers at www.flowers.ie. Rated five stars on Trustpilot. This is the new Toyota Yaris Cross. 
a new kind of SUV, new point of view, new compact style, new spacious feel, and exclusively self-charging hybrid, the right choice for today. Get a new perspective with the Yaris Cross self-charging hybrid. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. Built for a better world. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 